right now on Matter of Fact. Inside the battle over mask mandates, the governor of Texas says no. Why this determined school superintendent says yes. It's not very easy to tell the governor, nope, not doing what you want me to do. It's absolutely not easy to do that. Plus, how the brutal murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till transformed a nation and set in motion a generation of change. When I learned about what happened, the injustices, but also that young people made change. It compelled me to want to be a part of that change too. But first, why isn't there more help for Haiti? 50,000 homes have been destroyed, so that's 50,000 families who are homeless. An urgent humanitarian crisis in the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. The needs are enormous. Will the richest nation on Earth decide to do more? The politics behind Aid to Haiti. I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. At this moment, two tragedies share the world stage. Desperate and dangerous evacuations continue in Afghanistan as deadly terrorist attacks create chaos. And in Haiti, a massive humanitarian relief effort ramps up to save lives. Just two weeks ago, the small island nation was hit by a 7.2 magnitude earthquake and then battered by Tropical Depression Grace. More than 2,000 people are dead, hundreds are still missing. Natural disasters have plagued that country. It sits on top of two fault zones and in the middle of one of the Caribbean's major hurricane belts. The island still hasn't recovered from the 2010 earthquake or the last three hurricanes from the past decade. And add to that the assassination of the Haitian president. So the country is again mired in a political crisis, all making it hard for Haiti to get on steady ground. Lavarice Godin is working around the clock to provide food and supplies to his fellow disaster victims. He is the Narive program manager, working in partnership with the California-based What If Foundation. A lot of things so damage the house, our school, everything. So therefore, I received more calls than ever. Water, food, medicine, and these are the need for now, because still people don't find water. Some of the area, there is no infrastructure and car cannot get into it. So you have to struggling to get to those places. And also the tent, because they don't have no house in order to sleep. Now people asking you to bring some plywood to buy food you know, anything so they can build a house or anything so they can live so far with their children. This is not the country with the infrastructure. Something happened, people can find some good place to go and be taken care right away by their government. But here, people are not really waiting for the government, you know, people are waiting for other organizations coming from somewhere to help. Ramesh Rajasingham is the Deputy Emergency Relief Coordinator for the United Nations. He's in Haiti to meet with displaced people and emergency response teams. He joins us from Port-au-Prince. Thank you for talking with me. Um, I know you've just uh, toured the island. Can you tell me a little bit about where you went and, uh, and what you saw? The main purpose of my visit here was really to look at the 
impact of the earthquake that took place on the 14th of August, which was a, a strong earthquake. Uh, and this particular one hit the, the southernmost provinces of Haiti, the three southernmost provinces of Haiti on that peninsula. What I saw was obviously a, a very distressing picture. But there's also some encouragement because we have a strong, we have strong capacity, human capacity in Haiti. In that sense, uh, we're, we're quite fortunate to have the capacity, but the needs are enormous. Tick off for me some of those needs off the top of your head. Sure. So I visited a, a small community called Maniche, which is in the, in the south. Um, we, we had to go there by helicopter and then take a go by road. It's, it's fairly, it's fairly, it's difficult to reach, but that particular community was very badly hit. And uh, I, I visited schools that were destroyed. And one particular school, by the way, uh, has two, uh, two sessions or, or, or two shifts. In the first shift, they educate 400 children. In the second shift, they educate 600 children. It's a fairly small school, but so obviously the classrooms are quite, uh, uh, quite crowded. But that, that, those, all those classrooms have been destroyed now. So schooling, they, they can't be a school in that, in that location anymore. The health facilities have been very badly hit. And you know, we are in the middle of this pandemic crisis uh, in COVID in, in Haiti. Health facilities were already very weak, so now they've just been further disrupted and they're in many cases inoperable. Um, but what people need is that a shelter, 50,000 homes have been destroyed. So that's 50,000 families who are homeless. They need water, uh, water and sanitation, because that's always a life-saving assistance requirement in these situations. And then finally, obviously, uh, they need food. And so this is what we've been trying to provide as soon as possible. Everyone's well aware that there was the assassination of the Haitian president. Uh, and I would have to imagine, to, uh, to some degree, a, a bit of a power vacuum. How, how is that impacting how you're able to move around the country and actually bring help to the people who, who need it? Well, the good thing is, and I, and I met with the prime minister today, for example, and he has given us all assurances of support. Uh, he was instrumental, and he uh, and his office were instrumental in, in obtaining access, as I mentioned, through these uh, major routes that go from the capital to the affected area because of the gangs that control them. There was a UN official I saw quoted the other day who said um, there were lessons learned from 2010 and that some things are being done differently. Um, can you tell me what some of those things are that are being done differently and, and what lessons were learned? In Haiti, on any humanitarian situation, uh, no population wants to live year in, year out on, on relief assistance. Just this morning, together with the Prime Minister uh, of Haiti, and the Minister of Planning, uh, we launched an appeal for the earthquake uh, victims, uh, targeting 500,000 uh, uh, civilians who were affected by the earthquake. These are the most vulnerable civilians, the most vulnerable people affected by the earthquake. And we're asking for $187 million to support them uh, throughout this period, just to save lives and then to help them rebuild their lives after that. These are extraordinary situations. There's no cookie cutter approach to them. Uh, and so we just need to, in each context, there's a separate, there's a, there's a distinct way of approaching things. And we need, we're learning more and more at each time, with each year, engaging with the people. And I think this time around, we have to do it. Uh, the Haitian people deserve it. Um, and I think the international community is, is fully behind uh, supporting this. Ramesh Rajasingham is the Deputy Emergency Relief Coordinator for the United Nations. Thank you, sir, for your time. Well, thank you very much, Sadiq.
Next on Matter of Fact, a Texas superintendent is standing her ground in the battle over mask mandates. It's really not about being right, it's about doing right. Why she says defying the governor was a personal decision, not a political one. And later, we take you to the roof of the world because everyone needs a little stargazing. America's children are back to school after a very tough year. They've paid a high price for months of disrupted schedules, limited contact with their peers, and remote learning challenges. We see it in rising rates of depression and anxiety and a loss of learning that will require remedial work. Well, now the surge of the highly contagious Delta variant threatens them and the plans of school districts across the country. Many school district leaders are mandating masks. In Arizona, Florida, and Texas, they're doing so while going against their own governor's orders. Dr. Stephanie Elizalde is one of those district leaders. She's a superintendent for the Austin Independent School District in Austin, Texas, a district with 75,000 students. It's so nice to have you with us uh, today. Thank you very much. I know your school just opened last week uh, in person. How's it, how's it been going so far? Overall, it has been really great to see our students in our classrooms. Teachers are happy. Um, principals are leading schools and our community is coming together to do the very best to keep our students and staff safe and healthy throughout the remainder of this pandemic. Are you finding that it's a fight to get people to wear their masks or that uh, a great percentage of people are not vaccinated and they're pushing back? I think I've been extremely fortunate in our community, even individuals with dissenting opinions have all rallied around us working together to understand where we're all coming from. Most of the emails that I even receive, Soledad, start with, I know you're in an impossible situation, but, and then they explain their position. Um, and so at this point, have we had some individuals who maybe have opted not to bring their children to our schools? There have been some, um, but they have not been um, of such discord that they have created animosity. I, I don't think everyone is happy with our decision. I think the majority of our folks do understand it and overwhelmingly are supportive regardless of their own personal perspectives. I know you were able to incentivize your staff. I think you're paying like 250 bucks uh, to any staffers who get vaccinated. Has that been successful? Um, absolutely has been successful. Um, we had within an hour and 15 minutes of our release of that information yesterday, we had over 800 staff members responding um, that had not previously been vaccinated. Where do I go? What is the information? So I think that's also telling us two things. There's more, um, I think there's more confidence now that the emergency use has been removed from the Pfizer vaccine and that at the same time, because we had already begun conversations about incentivizing vaccines, that we continued to um, keep to our word and that we did that even though the emergency use has been removed. The governor of Texas has been very clear about what he thinks of mask mandates. Uh, and you've said that this decision for you was deeply personal and, and talked about being a, a mom. Uh, can you walk me through a little bit of that decision making process that I know um, had to be a bit of a, a struggle? It's not very easy to, 
to, to tell the governor, nope, not doing what you want me to do? It's absolutely not easy to do that. But knowing that at the end of the day, I'm responsible for serving and keeping everybody as safe as I possibly know how to do, if something should happen terribly because of a child with COVID, I would not be able to say, sorry, I did everything I could except this because there is this order. I had to do what was best for students. Dr. Stephanie Elizalde is the superintendent of Austin Public Schools. Thank you for your time, I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up on Matter of Fact, two white men brutally murdered 14-year-old Emmett Till and got away with it. It was here in this courtroom that two men got off for murder. And so we decided that we needed to begin by apologizing to the Till family. How this Mississippi town is making amends for justice denied. And still ahead, could this astronomical real estate come with the world's best view? Six years ago, on August 28, 1955, the battered body of a 14-year-old boy was fished out of the Tallahatchie River in Mississippi. That young boy was Emmett Till. Till had traveled from Chicago to Sumner, Mississippi to spend time with his extended family. While there, he was accused of flirting with a white woman. Later, the woman's husband and brother-in-law kidnapped Till brutally beat him and then threw him in the river after tying a 75-pound cotton gin around his neck, a large machine that separates cotton seeds from raw fiber. They hung it around his neck with barbed wire. The two men were tried for Till's murder and they were acquitted by an all-white jury. Decades later, Carolyn Bryant, the woman who accused Till, said she had lied. A young Mississippi native, Patrick Weems, knows the importance of telling Till's story. Our correspondent, Diane Roberts, shows us his efforts to preserve Till's legacy. The only version of civil rights I was taught was that Rosa Parks sat down and Martin Luther King stood up and everybody was free. 30-year-old Patrick Weems grew up in Mississippi. And it wasn't until I was 18 and I took a specific course on African-American studies that I learned about Emmett Till. When I learned about what happened, the injustices, but also that young people made change, it compelled me to want to be a part of that change too. Determined, Patrick said about the work of preserving the Mississippi courtroom at the center of the Till story and the task of making amends. It was here in this courtroom that two men got off for murder. And so we decided that we needed to begin by apologizing to the Till family before we could begin with our museum. And out of that apology, we decided to restore our courthouse back to the way it looked in 1955 and open up the Emmett Till Interpretive Center. That was 10 years ago, when as a 20-year-old college student at Ole Miss, Patrick took the lead in seeking racial reconciliation. So in 55, uh, Carolyn Bryant told this sensationalized story and she did it to kind of persuade people to think that what her husband did was okay. Played into the myth that black men are, are rapists, uh, will come after white women, and white men, women need to be protected. And because Emmett Till can't tell his story, Patrick does every day in his role as the center director. 
after the trial, people were embarrassed, ashamed that this had happened in their community, especially after the two men confessed to the murder. So for us to finally break that silence was for us a big step towards uh, healing. Patrick says there was no justice for Emmett in this courtroom, but he wants to educate future generations in hopes of racial equality and equal justice. For us to be a part of actually coming to the table and doing the hard work of telling the truth and speaking openly about race, my hope is that we empower communities across this nation to look in their own backyards and understand how our history is impacting our current conversations around race. Next month, production starts on a feature film called Till. One of the film's producers is Academy Award winner Whoopi Goldberg. Next on Matter of Fact, Decision Made. The court ruling that gives ex-offenders a chance to recover their right to vote. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. 56,000 ex-offenders in North Carolina are one step closer to getting the right to vote. A civil rights group sued the state for denying felons the right to vote until they finished up every part of their sentence, including probation, parole, and any fines or fees that they owed. Well, now the courts have said the state can't keep those ex-felons from voting. In other voting news, the House of Representatives passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, named after the longtime Georgia congressman and civil rights activist who died last year. The bill restores a part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that allowed the Department of Justice to prevent changes in voting rules in states with a pattern of discrimination. The bill is expected to face steep GOP opposition in the Senate. Ahead. Could this be the most heavenly spot on Earth? Finally, a dream destination for stargazers. Chinese astronomers are eyeing the Tibetan Plateau to be the newest home of an observatory. That area is called the Roof of the World, and it has an average elevation of about 15,000 feet above sea level. That's about three miles if you're trying to do the math. It makes it the highest region on Earth. Researchers have studied the area for three years and they like it because the black sky and the clear air make the location a premium spot to view the cosmos. The new telescope will image the entire sky above the northern hemisphere once every three nights. And it'll sync with telescopes at the observatory in Chile to give a worldwide view of the sky. The telescope is under construction. It'll be more than eight feet long, cost $28 million. Expensive, but pretty cool. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the massive humanitarian relief effort in Haiti, the Texas superintendent who defied the governor and issued her own mask mandate for students, one man's quest to preserve the legacy of Emmett Till, and a court order that makes it possible for ex-offenders to vote. Just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.